reaching into the back seat of our 1985 Toyota Camry to shove a pacifier into the mouth of my son, I felt the frustration overcome me. And in that moment, I realized how utterly selfish I was. Now, this is one of thousands of moments as a parent where God uses our children to to reveal that to me, how selfish I am when it comes to interacting with them. But I had driven to pick Danae up from work at that time. We only had one car. She was working. And along the way, Titus in the back seat would not stop crying. And I had pulled over time and time again trying to get him to stop crying. And along the way to pick up my wife from work, I had rehearsed this speech in my mind that this was going to be the last day that I stayed home to keep him. I just couldn't do this. This was overwhelming. There's no way I can get the things that I need to get done done and take care of this child. Benet was finishing up a job and I was finishing up school and so there was a time for a few weeks before she came home to stay with him that that I had this grand plan I was going to stay home and read and study and finish up school and write papers and and get a lot of things done at home and having a child there that's not going to be any problem I mean he's just a baby all they do is sleep right I just put a bottle in his mouth change his diaper every now and then that'll be easy uh, I can multitask and write a lot of deep theological papers during this time, no problem. Except for the fact that and Titus was our worst baby. He never, during, he would sleep fine at night, but during the day he never took naps. And he screamed and squelched all the time. He constantly wanted attention. And so I could never get done what I needed to get done. And my plans were constantly disrupted. Now, the glorious thing about this 1985 Toyota Camry was that the muffler was broken on it. And so one of the things that I could do during the day is put him in the back seat and just drive around. And that vibration and sound of that muffler would put him to sleep. But I wasn't writing any papers. Children can interfere with our lives. And it's one of the things that as parents we have to realize and get used to is that they can get in the way. Their presence can overwhelm our agenda and they can reveal to us how utterly sinful we are. If you do not take care of them, they die. If you don't take care of them, they're not provided for. And you have to decide if that interference in your life is an inconvenience or if you're going to embrace it with joy. And there's no one in human history who had a harder decision when it came to the inconvenience of a child than Joseph. As he is made aware that his bride-to-be, Mary, who he is betrothed to, is pregnant with a child that has been conceived of the Holy Spirit, he has to understand that this is an inconvenience. 
And one of the things that we see in this inconvenience is Joseph's sin is made aware to him. And this is why we see at the end of this story, he embraces his son as his savior. Notice, first of all, in our text today, the incarnation is an inconvenient scandal for Joseph. Notice verse 18. Now the birth of Jesus Christ, Matthew, the gospel writer, is out to prove that Jesus is the Messiah. And he begins his gospel by tracing Jesus's family tree through the biblical dynasty that began with Abraham and ran through King David. And Matthew wants us to understand that Jesus's line, his family tree runs through this biblical dynasty, which proves he is qualified to be the Messiah. But notice now the birth of Jesus Christ, as we said last week, Savior King, the Messiah, the one, the King who saves. Notice his birth took place in this way. What Matthew is going to show is out of all of the people in this biblical dynasty, the birth of Jesus takes place in a very unique way, in a way no other births have taken place. Notice he says, when his mother Mary had been betrothed to Joseph. Now remember last week we talked about this angel Gabriel comes to this peasant girl Mary, insignificant, probably between the ages of 13 and 15, preparing to be married. She is betrothed. And remember last week we said betrothal is not engagement. It is a covenant to be married. And if you broke off that covenant, it was equivalent to divorce. But notice she is betrothed to Joseph. And really the only thing we know about Joseph is he is an insignificant carpenter. But notice before they came together, she was found to be with child from the Holy Spirit before the marriage was consummated. It seems as though after the angel Gabriel came and announced to Mary that she was going to give birth to Jesus, conceived of the Holy Spirit, she goes to stay with her cousin Elizabeth, who is also experiencing a miraculous birth. She stays with Elizabeth some three months. And it seems as though during that time she is with Elizabeth, people begin to talk. Family members begin to realize what is going on. And the word gets back to Joseph, her husband-to-be, who she is betrothed to, that she is found to be with child. But the rumor is, this is from the Holy Spirit. Now notice Joseph's reaction. And her husband Joseph, being a just man, being a righteous man, and, or we could translate this, but unwilling to put her to shame, resolved to divorce her quietly. As Joseph gets word, Mary is with child, and she says it's from the Holy Spirit, his reaction is this, hogwash. He doesn't believe it. And the text explains, he does not believe it. Notice, he is a just man. He does what is right. He does what is honorable. And in his mind, he is considering Mary a cheat. And so according to the law, he has every right to put her on blast. According to the Old Testament, he could have her stoned. 
And all of those things are going through his mind because he does not believe the story. He does not believe at this moment in the virgin birth. And notice what he does. Unwilling to put her to shame. Yes, he's a compassionate man. But he resolved to divorce her quietly. And why is this? He has a reputation as a just man. If he marries a pregnant woman, what are people going to think about him? They're going to think that he is not an honorable man, that he himself has committed immorality. And so Joseph here is worried about his reputation. And yet, in compassion, to keep all of this quiet, he, does, he wants to dissolve the marriage in private so no one knows. But the point here is this is inconvenient for Joseph. Imagine all the plans for his life that up until this moment included Mary. This is inconvenient as he is away preparing to get married, preparing to take on a wife and a family. And yet all of a sudden this news and this weird story about the Holy Spirit conceiving a child in the womb of his wife-to-be, and he doesn't believe it. He doesn't want to be involved in this scandal. He doesn't want to be seen as unfaithful or immoral. It wasn't as though Joseph got the news, Mary's pregnant, and he began to say, well, it's beginning to look a lot like Christmas. I've been dreaming of such a scandalous Christmas. That's not how he responded. He's trying to hide this. He's trying to get out from under it. And and I think as we read the Christmas story every year, it is so good for us to come to terms with how scandalous and unbelievable it is. So many Christians want to take Christianity and make it more palatable to the world. And so we dumb it down. And so we don't talk about things that are controversial. We don't talk about things that are offensive. And we get embarrassed by things like this that are amazingly supernatural. But you can't believe the Bible and not believe in things that are weirdly supernatural like the virgin birth. We get embarrassed by what the Bible teaches about marriage, abortion, gender. And we, we, we don't want to be seen as kooks in the culture. But have you ever come to terms with the fact that you believe in a Middle Eastern man who was crucified on a Roman cross and you declare today that he is back from the dead, seated at the right hand of God, ruling and reigning? Have you ever come to terms with how scandalous that is? Have you ever come to terms with one of the centerpieces of Christian worship for Baptist is to take a pool of water and symbolize a burial, symbolize a funeral for anyone who says they believe in this Middle Eastern man who's back from the dead? Have you ever come to terms with the fact that when we partake of the Lord's Supper, we are remembering the flesh and blood of Jesus Christ, who throughout history, other groups have looked in upon us and said, we are cannibals. 
Have you ever considered how weird and strange these things that we believe are? And we believe ultimately that our hope is that this one would come back and save us from this world riding on a white horse and we forever would be queens and kings who rule with him. Have you ever thought about how fairytale-ish all of this is? How strange all of it is? And I haven't even mentioned the big boat in northern Kentucky yet. It's weird and it's crazy. And to be a Christian, you can't get out from under the scandal. And here Joseph wants no part of it. It's an inconvenient scandal of an inconvenient Savior, which we see next. Notice verse 20. But as he considered these things, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream. Joseph is struggling through these things. And again, he is intent on divorcing her annulling the betrothal. And he's trying to make sense of these things. He's probably brokenhearted. He's struggling. And during this time, the text says, behold, that there is a stop. The, the, the narrative is headed toward divorce. And then all of a sudden, no, stop. An angel of the Lord, a messenger of the Lord, As we saw last week, Gabriel, from the presence of the Lord, same thing going on here, except this angel speaks to Joseph in a dream. And he says, Joseph, son of David, do not fear to take Mary as your wife. Now, Matthew wants to emphasize again, Joseph, son of David, he is in the line of David. Jesus is going to come through an adoptive father that fits in the messianic line. He is a part of this promised kingdom that is coming. He is in the line as well as Mary. But he says, do not fear to take Mary as your wife. Do not fear to consummate the marriage. Do not fear to make her your bride. Do not fear to become her husband. Do not fear your reputation. Do not fear the scandal. Do not fear the difficulty of embracing her as your wife. Notice why. For that which is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. Notice the word that. Here, it's impersonal. He's not referring when he says that. That's impersonal. Jesus is a who. He's talking about that which is going on in her womb. The Holy Spirit is doing. And we talked about this last week. The Holy Spirit takes the womb of Mary and sets it apart, makes it holy so that the eternal Son of God can can take on embryo, can take on manhood, can take on what it means to be human in her womb. And notice verse 21. That which is going on in her womb is from the Holy Spirit. And eventually she will bear a son and you shall call his name Jesus. She will give birth to a son. She will deliver a child. And here's what you're going to do, Joseph. He's not just revealing and explaining to Joseph what is going to happen. He's telling Joseph in light of what is happening, there's going to be something required of you. And it is this. You shall call his name 
Jesus. You're going to give, be given the responsibility as the father to name the child. And the name which you will give him is Jesus, which means Yahweh is salvation, which means deliverer, which means rescuer. And takes us back to Joseph or Joshua in the Old Testament, the one who delivered the people of God into the promised land. And Jesus is going to fall in line with with that name, with that reputation of one who will deliver God's people. But notice from what? He will save his people. The people he will rule and reign and serve. He will save his people from their sins. This is what he has come to do. Rescue his people from their sins. You see, we talk about this a lot. In the Old Testament, there is this cycle of sin, judgment, and deliverance over and over and over again. The people of God, they sin against God. And what does God do to them? He punishes them. He sends them into captivity. People come and they take over their land and take them into exile. But what does God do after they repent and confess their sin? He sends a deliverer. He sends judges. He sends Joshua's. He sends Moses's. He sends David's. He sends kings who go in and deliver God's people. And throughout the Old Testament, God used deliverers to rescue his people from the Egyptians, the Philistines, the Canaanites, the Chaldeans, the Babylonians, the Persians. And at the birth of Jesus, the Jews are sitting around wondering, who's going to deliver us from the Romans? Well, there's a baby being born who's going to deliver you. But your greatest problem isn't your enemies. Your greatest problem isn't the Romans. Your greatest problem is your sin. And before you are delivered from any other enemy, you must be delivered from your sin. Your greatest problem is the sin that that is in your heart that leads to rebellion, that causes God to judge you and cast you away. And if you don't deal with the sin, you're going to be cast away from God forever. Jesus has come to deliver his people from that sin. You see, one of the issues is sinners can't rescue themselves from their sin. As a sinner, you are guilty of sin and you must pay the penalty for your sin. And you can't rescue yourself from that guilt in and of yourself. You must die. And you can't produce saviors for your sin. I mean, look at our offspring. They're just like us. They are sinful. And so we exist in this devastating trap and bondage, eternal devastation that we are sinners who must pay for our own sin. And yet here, what God is telling us is he has intervened in human history. What has happened in every person that has ever been born all of the normal biological necessities that take place, God steps in and intervenes. And while we can't produce a Savior, He steps in and produces one for us in the womb of Mary. A Savior who entered the world hidden in a womb. 
hidden as a speck of an embryo. A Savior who became a child, who nursed, who how Jesus had to be taught how to read his own Bible. A Savior who enters the world, who grew into a man, and because the womb was set apart, a sinless person who lives a sinless life. And yet, this sinless man who was always just, who was always right, was hated and despised by those he created, and they eventually killed him. A Savior who embraced not just weakness, but utter helplessness to the point of exhaustion and death. He embraced that as a sacrifice for our sins. And God has declared... That this sinless Savior, His payment on the cross is sufficient to save you from all of your sins. He has declared that to us by raising Him from the dead. Because He didn't die for His own sin. He died for your sin. And He is raised up because He is righteous and He is perfect as a perfect payment for your sin. And He is seated at the right hand of God in the same flesh He took on and grew into. The same flesh that was crucified is seated at the right hand of God in glory on the eternal throne that He has occupied before time. He sent a Savior into the world. And all of that declares that you need a Savior. All of what we have just unpacked there is a cosmic billboard that you need a Savior. Think about that. God did not come into the world, take on human form, incarnate to make you healthy, wealthy, and happy. He could have done that another way. We read our Bibles, we see God interacts with human history in all kinds of ways. Just providence. He orchestrates human history. Miraculously. God, God stops the day in one moment we read about in the Old Testament. God, God does all of these miraculous things in the world. He brings about earthquakes to, to rescue His people from prison. If your greatest need wasn't being saved from sin, God could have done it another way. The reason he takes on flesh is because you need a savior and you need a sinless savior. If your greatest problem was money, relationships, or just the stresses and worries of this life, God could have providentially given you a better government, a better job, a new spouse, better parents. He could have given you greater intellect. He could have done all of those things to orchestrate your life in a different way so you could be rescued from what you probably think today is your greatest problem. But your greatest problem is sin. And that's why he entered the world and lived a sinless life and died for your sin as a sufficient payment on the cross because you need a savior. The incarnation is the inconvenient truth that your greatest problem is sin. Notice the text continues. This inconvenient Savior becomes an inconvenient interference. Notice verse 22. All of this took place to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet. And so Matthew kind of zooms out. 
And as Joseph is struggling with what's going on here, he's considering what to do with, with his covenant to, be mar- to, to marry Mary. He, he's considering this decision. He's considering what the angel has called him to do. Matthew zooms out and he quotes from the prophet Isaiah, who said, Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which means God with us. Matthew wants to take us back to another decision that we read about earlier in our service, the decision of King Ahaz in Isaiah 7:15 when we read of this one who is Emmanuel which is God with us which is which is God is near to us with us is God and at first we must realize that in this word Emmanuel is the fulfillment of all of God's promises in Leviticus 26:12 we read and I will walk among you And I will be your God and you shall be my people. In Genesis 3, because of his sin, Adam is banished from the presence of God. And then throughout the Old Testament, we see places that represent the the presence of God. We see the tabernacle. We see the temple. And then in Jesus, we have the person who is the presence of God. And then in the Holy Spirit, we are given the gift of the presence of God. And it all consummates in Revelation chapter 21, verse 3, where it says the dwelling place of God is with men and he has come to live with them. This issue of God with us is the fulfillment of all of God's promises. But in Isaiah, and this is why Matthew quotes Isaiah, the issue of God with us is very inconvenient for us. There is a king named Ahaz and God promises to defeat all of Judah's enemies for King Ahaz. And he says to to the king to, to prove to you that I will take care of all of your enemies. I'm going to give you a sign. You ask for any sign in the scripture we read together today. And Ahaz says, I don't want a sign. And why does he say that? Because Ahaz doesn't want God meddling in his business. This king wants to make an alliance with Syria and handle his enemies himself. And he doesn't want God meddling in what's going on. And yet God said, I'm going to give you a sign anyway. There is a child that will be born, and ultimately I'm going to get glory in a victorious king, a wonderful counselor, a prince of peace that we read in Isaiah. What God says to King Ahaz is, you can't stop me from interfering, and I'm going to take care of my people's enemies. I'm going to be Emmanuel, God with us. The same decision is before Joseph right here. Is he going to be like King Ahaz? I don't want any part of you meddling in my business. As you promise to come into the world and save your people from their sins, what is Joseph going to say? This is going to be extremely inconvenient for him. 
He stands in the same place of this Old Testament king. And he has to answer the question, is he okay with God interfering in human history? Because it begins with a very inconvenient interruption in his life and his plans for his family. You see, we would like for Emmanuel to mean not God with us, but God, God for us. God for us sounds great, right? He does what we want him to do. God for us does good things for us. But when God for us means he has to be with us, that's scary and that's uncomfortable for sinners. We would rather God to kind of be silent, this tag along in the background, sort of this cosmic AAA. When we need him, he steps in and he fixes things. But if he's going to be with us all the time, that's going to interfere in our life. That's what Ahaz rejected. I want my idolatry and my sinful alliances. And that is the question before Joseph. This was the question before C.S. Lewis when he was coming to faith in Christ. And one of the things that he hated about God was if he was going to believe in God and follow Jesus Christ, it was going to interfere with his life. And he loved his sin. And he says this, but of course, what mattered most of all was my deep-seated hatred of authority. My monstrous individualism, my lawlessness, no word in my vocabulary expressed deeper hatred than the word interference. And Christianity placed at the center what seemed to be to me a transcendental interferer. The only way God can save us from our sins is to interfere in our lives. And that's the thing that scares some of us the most. You would be okay with heaven. You just don't want to have to deal with God until you get there. You just don't want God with you until you get there. You see, in all of our relationships, what leads to conflict and frustration all the time is our expectations of others. We expect people to be a certain way. We want them to be a certain way. And when they don't meet our expectations, there's dissonance, there's frustration in the relationship. And some of us, our greatest frustration with Jesus is the unrealistic expectation that he's going to interfere or not interfere in your life. That's what you want. Save me from my sins and send me to heaven, but don't tell me what to do until I get there. And growth in the Christian life is this, expecting Jesus to interfere in every single area of your life because he's come to save you from your sin and he has died for your sin and the very sins that he has died for, the very sins that he hung on the cross and died for, he's going to purge from your life with his presence. That's why he gives you the Holy Spirit. That's why he gives you his word. That's why he gives you the church full of the Holy Spirit and surrounding the word of God is to purge you from your sin and interfere on the sin that has 
caused eternal damnation for you. He's going to purge that sin from your life. And so if you're going to follow Jesus and you're going to invite him into your life as a savior and invite his presence into your life by trusting him as Lord, his word is going to convict you of sin. His word is going to convict you of gossip. His word is going to convict you of complaining. His word is going to convict you of immorality. His presence is going to interfere in those things. His spirit in your life, God with us in the person of the Holy Spirit, Jesus' presence is going to lead and guide us with with our gifts and our our abilities and, and, and with promptings. He's going to change our plans at times. He's going to interfere in the status quo that you imagine for your life. You're going to be blessed with money. And the Holy Spirit is going to convict you. What are you going to do with it? Oh, I had plans for this. Oh, how about let's give and let's sacrifice for others. He's going to interfere at times. It's going to be inconvenient for you at times. He's going to lead you in different directions for his glory. And you're not going to be able to use your life for yourself. His people, the church, are going to interfere with your life. The church is the presence and authority of God on the planet. God with us is found in the church. And the church so often is this glorious, blessed inconvenience in our life. All of a sudden, we have people that we have to love. All of a sudden, we have people who we have to forgive. All of a sudden, we have people who we have to serve. And Jesus, to save us from our selfishness, to save us from our grudges, places us smack dab in the middle of people, other people full of His Holy Spirit who are having to love and forgive you. And that can be inconvenient at times. And He's going to interfere in those selfish desires of your heart that say, I can just alienate and isolate and I can seethe over here. And He's going to say, no, 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 no. I'm saving you from that sin. You get in the mix and you love and you serve and you forgive. He's going to interfere with our schedule. His plans for Christmas might ruin your plans for Christmas this year. Nobody laughed. You didn't get it. Okay. He's going to interfere in your family. He's not just going to be the family friend who comes over every now and then. He's going to set up shop in your house and be the king. And he's going to interfere in your values and plans and the way that you parent and the way that you interact with your spouse. Emmanuel, God with us, looks nice on a card or granny's crocheted Christmas ornament, but it's really hard and scary for sinners to invite God with us into our hearts and into our lives. For some of us, Jesus is the annoying house guest that just won't leave. And it makes you wonder, is he really your Lord and Savior, if that's the way you think about him? And eventually, you will ask him to leave. Notice as the text continues, what does Joseph do? Evaluating this decision, this inconvenience, this interference in his life. Notice what he does, verse 24. When Joseph woke from sleep, Matthew gets right after it, he did as the angel of the Lord commanded him. He obeyed. He took his wife. He goes to marry his wife. Verse 25, but he knew her not until she had given birth to the son. He doesn't want any 
question about who has done this. This is the Holy Spirit. But notice the last part of the text. And he called his name Jesus. He obeys in naming his son Savior. He called his name Jesus, this adoptive dad with the right to give the name to the son, names him Jesus just as the angel commanded him. Now, what do we see here with Joseph? Is he just embracing the scandal? You know, I really don't believe this, but God, I'm going to do you a solid here. I'm going to take a chance if this is true. Is it, is it just him embracing this difficulty? Is it just him believing that Mary had not cheated on him? Is it just him being the dad he didn't have to be and raising Jesus? Is that where his obedience lies? No, we see Joseph's obedience on Jesus' birth certificate. In these moments, as he considers what God is doing in this word from God, He believes that the son he is going to raise is his savior. Which means he has to understand that he is a sinner. So often we come to Mary and Joseph. And by the way, there's a lot of false teaching surrounding especially Mary about how she got to heaven. Mary got to heaven the same way you'll get to heaven. She believed the baby in her womb was her savior. And to believe that, she had to understand that she was a sinner. And that's what Joseph is declaring here as he names Jesus savior. This is his savior. It's not just that he taught Jesus how to cut wood, how to manage money, how to read his Bible. And and we would say, what a noble man to take on that task. That's what got him to heaven. No. He looked at this cosmic ultrasound through the word of this angel and said, Savior, Savior, I'm a sinner and my Savior is here. Joseph is justified the same way you will be justified. By believing in the death and righteousness alone of Jesus Christ. By naming Jesus your Savior, admitting that you are the sinner. Admitting that your sin is what has caused you the most problems in life. Have you ever sat down and thought about your conflict? Have you ever sat down and thought about the problems where you are right now? And sure, there are a lot of things that other people do to us sinfully and selfishly. But if you really evaluated your life, you would say the wicked, rebellious desires in your heart toward God have caused you the most problems. And if you don't believe that, your wicked rebellion against God sends you to hell. And that is your worst problem. But for some of us here today to say, it's me, I'm the problem, it's me, is just as unbelievable as the virgin birth. You can Google that later and see where it came from. But to admit you are the sinner is just as outrageous and scandalous and unbelievable as believing the Holy Spirit conceived in a peasant girl the Savior. It is outrageous and scandalous. And that's why to believe it is a miracle also in our own hearts. But it begins today with you saying this baby is your Savior by admitting your sin before Him. 
And by trusting that he has died on the cross and through his cross, you can be forgiven of your greatest sin and all of your sin. And you can be credited with his righteousness and you can be given his kingdom that will save you from the curse of death in this world. It begins by looking at Jesus Not just the baby born on Christmas, but the Savior seated at the right hand and admitting your sin. God interferes in our life all the times, all the time, and makes things inconvenient for us. And a lot of times it reveals our sin, right? There are things in your life right now that are really inconvenient for you, and God is displaying your sin. But nothing is as inconvenient as eternal health. And there are a hundred things today that are going to reveal your sin, maybe even your kids. But there's only been one born to save you from your sin. And his name is Jesus.